0: Discretionary listener participation is advised for the following pro wrestling podcast.
1: Welcome to Stick to Wrestling. My name is John McAdam. This is Stick to Wrestling, where if you give us 60 minutes, perhaps indeed we'll give you a raw bone in Wicked Good Podcast. Uh, we are continuing our deep dive into 1984 World Wrestling Federation. Feel free to join our Facebook group. Um, just search Stick to Wrestling. It'll come right up, and we will definitely let you in. I want to thank everyone who has been, been giving us such positive reviews uh for the deep dive into WWF uh, early 1984 I was kind of worried that eh, this isn't going to be for everyone but the stick to wrestling universe seems to really like it uh I have my twitter back if you want to follow me on twitter just search john mcadam and follow the guy with the stick to wrestling uh logo as his avatar and yeah that's that's it um once again let's get rolling on this WWF, a matinee on Saturday, January 21st in Landover at the Cap Center. Two notable results. Number one, Andre the Giant wins an 18-man battle royal. We talked about it last week. Battle royal night is absolutely awful. It's it's nothing but the battle royal and non-conventional, uh, non-competitive conventional non matches. But we have an interesting result after that. Rene Goulet who had been established as a low to mid card guy defeats the Tonga kid?
2: Yeah, I think um, you know, why would they why would they do something like that? You might say, well, I, I think for some of the younger guys, uh, it was just kind of um, you know uh, a test of sorts just to see if they could uh, uh, be a company guy and do what you're told and do a uh, you know do a job for maybe a veteran guy or even a veteran enhancement guy which uh, Rene Goulet certainly was this period. And uh, if that if that's all it was, then I'm sure Tonga Kid passed the test.
1: I think it was just that they had no plans for the Tonga Kid. I mean, this is about where he was much of 1983. And as 1984 rolled on, we're going to marvel at results like that. Rene Goulet defeats the Tonga Kid. onto the Philadelphia spectrum. January 21st, 1984, it's a Saturday night. Main event of this show is the WWF champion Iron Sheik fights Tito Santana to a double DQ. This is the only match available on video where Iron Sheik successfully defends the title, albeit on a double DQ.
2: Yeah, it's definitely a a much better uh, exciting matchup to have uh, Tito Santana, who's approaching his prime against the Iron Sheik compared to, say, uh, way, way over-the-hell Jay Strongbow against the Iron Sheik. So Mm -hmm. I think this was a a match that would at least give the fans a really good show.
1: It was a good match, but I I can tell you that, you know, looking through my eyes on January 21st, 1984, like, well, I knew the title had no chance of changing hands. Then again, I approached 90% of the title matches
2: that way. (laughs) Yeah, and then and then of course the next match was uh, Mass Superstar against Bob Backlund.
1: Yeah, one more time, and it's uh, let me see. Backlund threw Superstar back into the ring following a ringside brawl, but was unable to get back in the ring himself before the ten count. So this is noteworthy. Mass Superstar beats Bob Backlund via countout.
2: Yeah, I mean um, you have Mass Superstar who they really wanted to keep strong. I I think at the time they really didn't know. what to do with him in the future. Uh, but with Backlund, uh, they wanted to keep him strong too, for whatever reason. I mean, I think at this point in Vince's mind, he probably is still thinking, well, you know, if we keep Bob strong, he'd been champion for six years. Uh, we can get him to turn heel. He'll mean a lot to the business. Uh, Hogan Backlund feud would make a lot of sense. Uh, but of course that wouldn't, wouldn't end up happening. So.
1: No, it does not. We'll we'll talk about that when we get to the show where, uh, it's, august 17th i think 1984 where bob Backlund has his final wwf magic in salvatore belomo in philadelphia but the reason they did this is if i recall correctly and i don't have it in front of me the next spectrum show would be hulk hogan versus mass superstar for the wwf championship
2: yeah he he actually was one of the guys in the early days at least the first three or four months of uh Hogan's reign to get the uh, title shots and, uh, and it made a lot of sense. I mean, he was a guy that was uh, one of the uh, better stars of the uh, latter half of 1983 and he stuck around and, and I'm glad that they found uh, some good matches for him with Hogan.
1: Same here. I'm a a big superstar fan. Next up, we have Andre the Giant, Jimmy Snuka, and uh, an eight-man tag team match teaming with Tony Atlas and Rocky Johnson against the Three Samoans and Sergeant Slaughter. During the summer of 1983, there were so many matches involving Snuka, Andre, and the Samoans, and they're still
2: doing it. Yeah, those those matches were matches I never really liked. I mean, uh, I, I think in the WWF, and this even goes all the way back to the, the Bruno days, uh, they often, especially in MSG, would have like a six-man tag of sorts, basically to end the night, uh, the, the the end of the card. Uh, just get Hogan, get some of the heels. Uh, not Hogan, I get Andre and some of the heels. And have this massive tag team match, which really didn't mean anything. It never really... At least in the championship matches, if guys lost, you felt like they went up and down the standings. These uh, six-man tags or three out of five fall matches, they never really meant anything to me. And I'm sure uh, even though the fans like to see all the wrestlers together in the ring at once, they just were kind of sloppy matches in my opinion.
1: Oh, and you're right. They did the uh, gimmick where it doesn't say it says best at two out of three falls match here. I mean, they went as far as to do like three out of five falls earlier mm-hmm. in Philadelphia. And of course, you're having a fall now every two or three minutes, which kind of exposes the business.
2: <laughs> yeah, those are the days.
1: All right. We all American wrestling on Sunday the twenty second. The only result we have is Dr. D. David Schultz against Salvatore Bolomo. Uh Belomo has been doing jobs on TV, so he's losing kind of his importance.
2: Yeah, he he um he was a guy that I never really cared for. I mean, it was kind of like, you know, times were changing. The the Hogan Road Warrior look was coming in and kind of the ethnic old school, uh, like he was maybe a, a, kind of like a early 80s version of a Dominic DiNucci type. I mean, there really wasn't a, a need or a demand for that kind of ethnic wrestler anymore. But, um, but he did his role, and, and uh, he would be in and out a, a bit over the next few years. He, if I recall correctly,
1: they brought him in towards the summer of 1982, and he was a loyal soldier. He was around until, I want to say, spring or summer 1987. So, I mean, that's a nice run.
2: Yeah, yeah, I mean, he had patches of time where he was gone for long stretches. But, yeah, you're right. He was around in 87 sporadically, and uh, he he wasn't really getting any TV push. But, yeah, no. he was working for the company.
1: I mean, he was just another guy, but I mean, there were a lot of wrestlers uh, who coveted the spot that Salvatore Belomo had. The only result we have, excuse me, I already said All-American Wrestling. Now we go to Wrestling at the Chase, the 20, Sunday the 22nd, 1984. This show... I learned aired somewhere in Boston, but I was not aware of it. I'm going crazy over this right now because <laughs> I was looking at my old, you know, WWF tapes and it says right there, like uh, Channel 68, I think, in Boston. So I was unaware of this, but Ivan Putski against Ch- Tiger Chung Lee or defeats Tiger Chung Lee. Then we have Dick Murdoch versus Tony Atlas. There's not a winner listed here, but we have audio of Tony Atlas being very unhappy with Dick Murdoch, which we will play at some point. Dr. D- David Schultz makes his St. Louis debut against Jose Martinez. Uh, victory corner with Hulk Hogan. Andre in a handicap match. Neil Moscaris against Bobby Colt. Moscaris is being kept off the mainstream TV, but he's in St. Louis. We have Andre the Giant running off, Dr. D. David Schultz and Roddy Piper. And then Hulk Hogan against Gilbert Guerrero, who I am familiar with. He worked a little bit southwest and a little bit world class. I had no idea he made the trip to St. Louis.
2: (laughs) Well, um, I I will say um, I was just messing around on YouTube uh, yesterday, I think it was. And I came upon not this taping, but the uh, prior – wrestling at the chase taping and there is a a match just one match all by itself that's on youtube i think it's uh hulk hogan against maybe a uh bill dixon uh, it was the match that was taped on january 1st at wrestling at the chase and you you see hogan doing a lot of uh nice chain wrestling and, and uh really showing off what he can do and i mean i i i you, what you saw him do in this squash match with all of his chain wrestling, you would wouldn't probably see again until he wrestled Great Muda in, in Japan in the early '90s. But it, he he definitely showed a different side of himself, and I think he soon realized that you know in the WWF you didn't have to show that you're a great technical marvel. You could just do kind of some of the basic stuff and just get over just as much you know without having to show all all the best stuff that's in your bag of tricks.
1: I remember that Hogan versus Muda match from 1994. And yeah, you know, everyone was astounded like, wow, Hogan can wrestle when he feels like doing it. But in the WWF, there was no sense in doing it. Now (laughs) we get to the legendary night, January 23, 1984. 26,292 fans, which included 4,000 at the Felt Forum, part of Madison Square Garden. Steve, we were talking a little bit about this show before we started airing. We're going to talk about 1985-1986. In my opinion, this is, we're going to talk about 84 and 85. What am I talking about? like, wait a minute, (laughs) WrestleMania 2? No, we're not talking about that. Um, 84 and 85, this is probably the second biggest WWF show from the two years that we're talking about. And And I have not forgotten about the wrestling classic. This was a giant night.
2: Yeah, I I guess uh, we should compare this. I know uh, some of the other great Arcadian Vanguard podcasts, I know John Arezzi has talked about the night that they all knew that Bruno was coming back to win the title from Stasiak in December of 73. And basically, it was like a party atmosphere. It was like Christmas came early that year. And I think a lot of these fans uh, must have felt the same way. I think that they they knew or uh, not that they were observers of observer subscri- subscribers, but I think there was a buzz in the air that they knew something really big was going to happen. And uh, it, it certainly did on this day. Uh, From what
1: I've heard over the years, everyone knew Bruno was winning the title back. Everyone knew that Bob Backlund was winning the title from superstar Billy Graham. When I say everyone knew, everyone at Madison Square Garden knew. And on this night, everyone knew Hulk Hogan was winning the title.
2: Well, I and I, I'm, I'm sure you're probably the same way. When I was a kid, well, not a kid, but maybe uh, I was around 20 years old uh, back then when this happened. Um, yeah, I knew I knew it was going to happen. I mean, it was pretty obvious that Hogan was going to win the title. But I, I have to say, uh, just in the past uh, 24 to 48 hours, I was able to find the entire card on. Uh, YouTube, and I watched it, and I will say that this, uh, other than the title change itself, it was one of the worst, most atrocious cards I can remember watching. It was just, uh, we'll we'll get into it match by match, but it's just (laughs) loaded with disappointment as far as if you're into wrestling.
1: Oh, yeah. Um, This this was not a particularly good card. I've had it forever. but Anyway, (laughs) the invaders versus Mr. Fuji and Tiger Chung Lee goes to a 20 minute draw. Uh, I mean, we talked a little bit about the invaders last year. I mean, obviously, their push has been aborted.
2: Well, you know, I'll say I'll this, not so much about the invaders, but, um, you know, I think a lot of fans look back on this wonderful era with so much nostalgia and they they think about guys, especially like um, Gorilla Monsoon. I, I hear a lot of fans on the Website will say, uh, oh, you know him and him and Heenan were my childhood, and I I loved him as an announcer. And I don't, I don't understand why, you know, so many people or smart fans hate Monsoon. But listening to this match, especially this match with the Invaders, uh, Monsoon (laughs) made so many errors in the announcing. He actually said Johnny Rivera's name twice. Ah, uh, during the match, kind of outed uh, one of the masked executioners. Uh, he kept calling the referee, who was uh, Jack Lots. He kept calling him Dick Lots, and I guess he was thinking of Dick Rorley or Dick Kroll, who were you know quite frequent WWF referees. But he was just all over the place. I mean, he was just in another world. And Pat Patterson was doing the play by play, and he, he was just as bad, if not worse.
1: Oh man. Yeah, I, I do remember him calling Invader number two Johnny Rivera, which I actually figured it out myself, which I'm not good at. I mean, <laughs> back in nineteen eighty-three when they they debuted. I'm like, okay, this is Gonzalez and Rivera. Uh, hmm. the mass superstar pins Chief Jay Strongbow. Uh you know, I mean, what can I say about what what else can we say about Strongbow? Slaughter Sergeant Slaughter defeats Ivan Putsky via countout at 11:29. Uh, A little bit of a surprise there because Putsky generally was protected. Whereas at that time, I might have been thinking that Sergeant Slaughter was finishing up and maybe heading to you know back to Mid Atlantic or or Georgia. I didn't realize the world was changing.
2: Well, I, I saw this match, and I would say you know using the Meltzer scale, I would give it like a star and a half. And it would have been a complete dud, but uh, Slaughter was was bumping his ass off, just taking one hellacious bump after another. I mean, Putsky barely—I don't even know—he if broke a sweat, and I did time it. They didn't even lock up until after the five-minute mark, so oh, no. it was it was one of those matches where you know. Uh, but but Slaughter Slaughter juiced, and uh, he really uh, took probably six hellacious bumps. I would say. Oh man. Now I this
1: match I thought it was a good match. It wasn't no I'm not talking. I'm talking, I'm talking about the next match. Yes. Paul Orndorff versus Salvatore Belomo. Power slams him and pile drives him for the pin. Uh Piper is in Paul Orndorff's corner. I remember liking the match because it, it wasn't a great technical match, but it got Orndorf way over. It got Piper way over, and it felt like okay, these new guys, Piper and Orndorff and Schultz, are coming in and they're kind of taking over the heel side.
2: No, a- absolutely. And, and one thing that you have to give credit to Orndorf, and I didn't even know this until fairly recently, apparently, um, unlike a lot of wrestlers, I think he must have been one of the only ones to do this, he kept a book with him and when he would go to a town, like if he went to the Garden, and he would write down like what he would do in the match because he didn't want to repeat it like the next month he would write down like his ah. maneuvers and stuff. And, and he, he said that in this interview that I saw that he really hated the guys who were so rep, you know, repetitive, did the same thing every month, no matter where they went. And he always tried to change it up and God, I wish Ric Flair had <laughs> taken a, a note from Orndorf And, uh, I, I really think Orndorf um, is one of those guys who's so overlooked, especially in the history of WWF, because had he not been there, there would have been a huge void as far as somebody who was believable, credible, and just so legitimate compared to most of the other guys who were just uh, more showboating and, and not giving you real wrestling. He, I mean, like I think the world of Paul Orndorf.
1: I mean, he was a, a superstar as a heel. He was a superstar as a baby face. And, you know, I, like I said earlier in this podcast, I thought he w- could be, could have been NWA champion Don Morocco or magnificent Morocco versus Tito Santana ends in a double disqualification. And both men continued continually ignored the referee's instructions. Steve, I'm going to let the cat out of the bag a little bit. I was at the Boston Garden when Tito Santana beat Morocco for the Intercontinental Championship. We're going to talk about that show either next week or the week after. And I have told people over the past 36 years that the match was absolutely awful. And people are like, you know, wow, that's shocking or, you know, no way – Tito Santana was absolutely great. And Morocco, even though he wasn't what he was in 81, was still really good. And uh, this match was an absolute stinker in Boston. And this match from Madison Square Garden is Exhibit A that I'm not remembering incorrectly because this was not a good match.
2: I only saw part of it in in the, the match I found on YouTube. This particular match was like joined in progress. I couldn't really see the whole thing. But but exactly what you're telling is correct. You could tell that Morocco was probably just completely exhausted from having been on the national, the early part of the national tour in '83, and was just out of shape and just looked bad. And um, I, I don't. Uh, I want to do a kind of a quick segue here. Um, I've got an old observer in front of me, and Dave Meltzer said this, and I, I think this is interesting. It ties into what we're talking about. Dave Meltzer said in the March of 1984, looking back in hindsight, it's now obvious the choice of Sheik as champ, as Backlund's interim pre-Hogan replacement was a mistake. Morocco, after all, still out generates far more heat than Sheik could. The flag-waving scenario just isn't that effective anymore. Actually, I would have thought Sheik would do better, but most of his bouts with Backlund in returns didn't draw well at all. Perhaps the folks were just fed up with Backlund, but what what Dave Meltzer, you know, I think Dave Meltzer got a couple of things really wrong there. Uh, Morocco was definitely not in shape to have this massive, uh, you know, they couldn't have put him in is his, uh in the Hogan role. Morocco was just too exhausted or just too unable to to go on. And and uh, even though I love Dave Meltzer and I think he's a genius. You know, obviously, the fans wanted the flag waving stuff. They wanted yeah. to see Slaughter against Iron Sheik, and they wanted to see the All American Hulk Hogan destroy the uh, Iranian Iron Sheik, which was something they bought into. And uh, and the WWF milked that whole xenophobia deal for the next three or four years, if not more. I mean, they just loved that kind of thing.
1: They, they definitely did. And, you know, I, I said this on the, the first show. I mean, I don't think it mattered who Bob Backlund was wrestling on December 26, 1983. Whoever it was, I don't care. You know, I, it could have been Iron Mike Sharp. That guy was getting the championship. could have been Tiger Chung Lee. That guy was getting the championship. You know, it, it, it's it's four weeks. You get through it.
2: Oh, yeah. And, but, but looking back now, I mean, Vince couldn't have picked anybody better than Iron Sheik because, one, um, Iron Sheik, before winning the title, really didn't mean that much. He was just like one guy out of uh, millions in the crowd as far as the roster. But because he was champion now, it gave him a new uh, respectability. And having this former champion go against Sergeant Slaughter meant a great deal more had had he just been like some guy on the card. And um in having the All American, Hulk Hogan, you know this great um, patriotic superstar, beat uh, Sheik for the title, that meant so much too. I mean, the fans really wanted to see uh, this All American guy get revenge on this guy who represented the government that took our hostages and held them for so long.
1: Yeah, I, you know what? I personally, and I see your point, like Iron Sheik was definitely not a bad choice. If I had to pick one guy okay. who I'm just like, okay, we're going to throw something together and put a TV match on and have Bob Backlund lose the title on TV to... Pick the wrestler. It would have been Sergeant Slaughter, because if I knew I was turning Slaughter, and I give Slaughter that shine of being a former world champion, with you know, with the intent on of pushing him at some point as my number two babyface, like I would, I would want Slaughter to have that credibility. But again, you know, I've said this before. I I am convinced they put zero thought into it. Just oh, who's the opponent on the on the twenty sixth? That's the guy.
2: Yeah, it, but it worked out good, though. I it think, did. Uh, you know, it worked out for everybody.
1: It, it definitely did. And again, you know, I'm saying, well, give Sergeant Slaughter credibility. Well, you're, you're giving Iron Sheet credibility, so it works out both ways. And then finally— Not Finally, we have one more match after this, but the magic match. Hulk Hogan, a substitute for Bob Backlund, pins the Iron Sheik in 5 minutes and 40 seconds with the leg drop to win the title after ramming the champion back first into the turnbuckle to escape the camel clutch. It was a magic
2: moment, Steve. It it was. Um, I'd say it's one of those matches that... uh... Um, If anybody has any interest in wrestling, I'm sure they've seen this match at one point or another. They probably have seen it multiple, multiple times. In fact, uh, it later became the opening to Vince's A show. So it was basically on every week uh, to begin his show. And, um, you know, I just rewatched it yesterday. It it, it wasn't uh, filled with a lot of wrestling, but in this five-minute match or close to six-minute match, there was probably more wrestling than most of the rest of the card combined because there's very little wrestling on any of the other matches. And, uh, you know, she came off, uh, even though he, you know, lost in less than six minutes, uh, he came off strong. Uh, Hogan came off uh, super, super strong. And uh, both of them would be, you know, play huge roles in 1984 and going forward.
1: No, I mean, Hogan just went out and basically destroyed this guy. <laughs> he just you know, yeah. made it look like, you know, yeah, you you got lucky against an injured Bob Backlund, but you're not getting lucky against me. Yeah. Finally, the finale is once again, Andre the Giant, Rocky Johnson, Tony Atlas against Afasika and Samula. Uh, once again, Andre had been beating up the Samoans on seemingly a nightly basis since the summer of 1983.
2: Yeah, it was just one of those matches just to kind of, I think, just kind of calm the fans down. You saw the world title change. You can just uh, you know, take a breather now, or relax a little bit, maybe buy some popcorn, get a beer, or get a Coke, and then uh, end the night and go home happy. It was just one of those, uh, you know, they, they like to send the fans home happy, and uh, having Andre and his uh, cohorts win, that certainly made sense back then.
1: It definitely made sense, and, and they did that a lot. A lot of the time, the the last match almost always in Boston, Philadelphia, uh, New York, et cetera, where they announced what was going to happen next month before the last match. Here's a match that has no impact
2: on the next show yeah that that was a staple of all wwf shows and and, and one one uh, little bit of a humorous thing i wanted to add I, well at least i found it interesting uh the very beginning of the card which is on youtube for this classic uh, msg card uh, the show begins with howard finkel in the ring and i was surprised that when he did his initial introduction of you know i'm, I'm howard finkel welcome to madison square garden he didn't mention wwf or world wrestling federation he basically gave like an old school, welcome to this evening of championship wrestling, something like that. You would have thought that on this, you know, special of special nights, he would have said, you know, the World Wrestling Federation presents or something to that effect. But it was all old school. And they even did the introduction of the State Athletic Commission people at ringside, which really shocked me that they were still doing that as late as January of '84. Uh, As a
1: matter of fact, the the State Athletic Commission in both Allentown and Hamburg, Pennsylvania, my understanding is that they they made the WWF do that uh, prior to not just every every taping, but every Mm -hmm. television show on the taping. And I heard that at some point in 1983, Vince McMahon said, you know, look, we have to stop doing this. This is not entertaining television. You know, we can move these tapings. And they
2: backed off. Yeah, it was, just, it was just a waste of time. I know I know those guys like to have their names on TV, but other than that, it was a waste of time. I mean, it, it's great nostalgia,
1: but it's not good television. But anyway, we have uh, concluded this week's uh, National Expansion Podcast. I mean, Steve, it goes by really fast, but there's a lot of good stuff that we have already talked about, and we're just getting started.
2: Now, I'm really excited about this. Uh, I will uh, tell you something I've never told you before, and this is not, not, not exactly super exciting, but I used to have this little notebook I had where I would actually write some of the results of the TV matches in this notebook. I used that. You did that too? Okay. Yeah. Well, from 1984, I think I started in 84 because it was such an interesting year, and then I, I ended it in 87, and I remember putting something in the notebook to the effect of, Gosh, 84 was the best year. 85 was a little less great, and, and it kind of worked its way down from there. I remember 88 being the pits, but uh, 84 to 87 was really a magical time in wrestling for me.
1: It, it definitely was. I had a notebook of results from like 1977 to 1978. One day I just said, ah, I don't need this, and I threw it out. <laughs> it was like yeah. in my, or probably in my late teens, early 20s.
2: I think uh, when we start this week with Toronto – uh, and let's go back to January 22nd, 1984. And the reason I'm bringing this up is it's kind of a, a time of transition. As we talk about national expansion, the uh, Toronto Wrestling Office had been, for the most part, uh, of course, run by the tunnies but it was primarily a Jim Crockett promotion run uh, venue there. And uh, this is the card that they had on that day, January 22nd. Uh, We had in uh, prelim matches, Bob and Joe Marcus over Bobby Bass and Ben Alexander. Keith Larson over Kurt Von Hess. Len Denton, pre-grappler against or over Nick DiCarlo. Rudy and Terry Kay over Johnny Weaver and Keith Larson. Tito Santana over Don Carnotal, Leo Burke by DQ over Roddy Piper. And the main event, Angelo Mosco won the Canadian title over Sergeant Slaughter. And uh, why why I'm bringing all this up is it's interesting, John, because this is kind of the beginning of the end. this is the last card I could see where you had not only uh, Crockett talent, but some WWF guys sprinkled in. And I think next month it became a completely Jim Crockett card. And they would do that for the next few months.
1: Yeah, we left off on the 23rd, January 23rd, 1984, in the last show. And and Steve, thank you for doing this research, because this is a really interesting card the Sunday night before. You're right. It's a combination of WWF guys, and there are some JCP guys. But as we all know, this was the last time uh, Tunney ran a show using Jim Crockett uh, talent, which he had been doing for years, and he switched to strictly a Vince McMahon guy.
2: Yeah, I mean, I, I did the research and I mean, there are a few more shows that are they actually kind of go to just this just a strictly Jim Crockett uh, promotion for the next few months. I think July of 84, which we'll eventually get to, is the first purely WWF show with all WWF talent. But I think this is a huge um, turning point as far as the city and uh, you talk about national expansion and changing things. I mean, um, I think Crockett just didn't have the resources to support the Tunnies. I don't know, it was maybe they felt like, well, why should we send so much talent up to Toronto or we're splitting the, the uh, costs with the Tunnies or we're not making enough money? But uh, it seems like when they sent Flair and Valentine and Steamboat, the big, big names up there, they would draw really big. But it, what seems to be happening in these dying days of the Crockett promotion in Toronto, they had shows that were headlined by like uh, Jimmy Valiant and Paul Jones and some of the more mid-card guys of JCP. And, and it seems like uh, uh, Jack Tunney, of course, future WWF president, uh, I think he, he was starting to get worried. And I think he uh, was the one that basically uh, pulled the switch and said that we got to go to Vince and use Vince instead.
1: Yeah, I mean, I'm not, I'm not, who is the, who is the Crockett talent on this show? I'm not, I'm looking at it. I'm not seeing anyone. Santana's WWF. Piper is now WWF. Mosca is Toronto and Slaughter's WWF. So I think they, they jumped out. But one thing I, I one thing I couldn't help but notice, I don't even want to know how old Rudy and Terry K were at this <laughs> point. These guys <laughs> were around in the sixties, maybe even the fifties. And it's 1984 kids. Ugh.
2: Yeah, big stars in the Maritimes, uh, but yeah, as far as the Crockett guys, I mean Johnny Weaver, who was a legend, I guess, in the Carolinas. He was kind of like the Booker for this, you know, this time period. I mean, Keith Larson wrestled there. Some of these other guys did more like in prelims, but um, you know, you know, again, it's easy for us to talk about, you know, thirty years later, but yeah. uh, it, it just seems like they should have known that Toronto was such a hotbed of wrestling. Much like you know, St. Louis is another hotbed that uh, Vince was fighting for, and, and of course the St. Louis Wrestling Office and Larry Matisik and other people were fighting for. Um, I'm sure in retrospect, uh, Jim Crockett uh, would have put more into this to keep it because uh, it ended up being one of the WWF's hottest areas uh, of the 80s and then beyond.
1: Yeah, we're going to talk a little bit about St. Louis today. They had a show out there, I believe, January 29th, and and we'll we'll get to that. But, I mean, to me, it's so interesting that the St. Louis was such a – classic such a traditional nwa city and you had sam Mushnick who you know just i mean he was a no nonsense promoter he wouldn't do elaborate gimmicks he wouldn't let guys jump off the top rope uh because he he thought that was unrealistic and now you've got the wwf in that city who puts on the least realistic pro wrestling out there
2: yeah it, it definitely was like a completely different uh way of promoting, you know, Vince had always uh, focused on the managers and, and St. Louis managers with the exception of Eden's for like one visit weren't permitted, but you know, Mushnik had been out of it for uh, two or three years and Vince was ready to, to pounce and come in on this city. Uh, you know, they had been a vulnerable city. Uh, I mean, the St. Louis wrestling club was still getting some good crowds in there, but it just seemed that uh, it was a, a city that Vince just saw there was great opportunity in coming to.
1: My understanding, well, Sam Mushnick retired on January 1st, 1982, and the new promoters came in. It's been a while since I've read Larry Madison's book, but he has, he has a really good book out about St. Louis wrestling. And, you know, the new guys were like, okay, well, now that Mushnick is out of the way, let's go to all the crazy, dusty finishes, and that supposedly drove the fans away.
2: Yeah, I mean, you you kind of have to cater to them, but, uh, you know, I, I, I think um, – you know, where wrestling was very, very hot in the early 80s. I mean, I think a lot of it was just when they were using the super young talent, like, uh, you know, the Von Eriks when they're younger and uh, uh, Ken Vatera and DiBiase when he was young or DiBiase as they would call him there and Orndorf. I mean, they had so much young talent. And of course, these were the guys that were, Vince was going after when he did the national expansion. So uh, I think it was just... Uh, even though Vince was bringing a lot of gimmicks that way, he felt as long as he kept the young hot talent, uh, he could you know get some sellouts.
1: Well, St. Louis was an interesting town because they they had a lot of young guys, like you were saying. Um, you know, they were using the Von Erichs, they were using Brody, they were using Greg Valentine, but they were also using guys like. Gene Kaniski, for heaven's sake, in like the 80s. Bulldog
2: Bob Brown was yeah, out there. Dick the Bruiser. Dick the Bruiser was huge in St. Louis. <laughs> uh, yeah, he
1: was still getting a huge push in the early 80s. Pat O'Connor was yeah. still wrestling. So it really was a, an interesting mix. Uh, Rufus R. Jones wrestled there. So, you know, it, like I said, it was an interesting mix.
2: I, I kind of think it was like, um, you, you know, like... Um, not unlike um, real sports like, say, uh, like the Indy 500. Every year you would see these legendary older performers like the Mario Andretti's and the AJ Foyt's and the uh, uh, Dale Unser or Bobby Unser, all these names. And uh, it, because they had push wrestling as a sport in St. Louis, I think that these guys like the Gene Kaniski's and the Dick the Bruisers and uh, Pat O'Connor, they had so much... You know, gravitas as far as all their past achievements, even though they were past their prime and they were looking older, because it was a sports-based wrestling town. I think it. I think that worked for them. But uh, but Vince came in and he he brought a whole new thing with Hogan and and these uh, super heavyweights like Hogan, Stud, and some of the other guys.
1: Yeah, we'll, we'll we'll be talking a lot about St. Louis in this podcast uh, But right now now we just went back to the 22nd. We left off on the 23rd on the last National Expansion podcast. We're going to play some audio from Los Angeles that aired on Saturday january 23rd 1984. please note that this is surviving footage if it's not you know the most beautiful audio you've ever heard it's because again it's surviving footage and we are using this for review purposes only let's listen to the los angeles interviews
0: los angeles area this past monday night madison square garden in case you have not heard about it the incredible hulk hogan brand-new World Wrestling Federation champion. More on that a little bit later on. Come on in, Ivan Putski, Polish power, here in Los Angeles at Thank the Olympic much, Auditorium. Tonight's solidarity, it's going to be a 20-man, over-the-top rope, Battle Royal, and you, Ivan, to be part of it. That's right. You know how much? 30 grand? $30,000 to go to the winner.
3: Well, for Bar, you know how much uh, partying and good times we can have? But I tell you, Gene, it's a dangerous situation there. You know how high that ring is? You come down all the way on see C-Man, 18 men inside that ring, dangerous, broken bones, teeth, head. You know, people don't realize what chance we are taking go stepping inside that ring. But I tell you what, Gene, I'm after that $30,000. Well, I can pay my whoop, income whoop, tax for a, that. Just
0: a second, Ivan Putsky, I've just been informed by promoters the amount $50,000. Whoa!
3: Whoa! God almighty! $50,000? I tell you what, I'm ready. I'm going to sing, holler, shout, do everything, get that $50,000. And then at the end, I want to invite my Polish army, the Solidarity. And you know what? We're going to have 40 at Board, and You're invited, my man. I yes, thank God. you
0: very much. The great one out of Krakow, Poland, Ivan Less Listen, that pencil neck geek can't even count the 50000 I You compare him up with $0.50. Cents. And you, you pencil neck geek, you, you're standing in a presence. Of the world's heavyweight wrestling champion. That is. The Iron Sheik that is, will always be the world's heavyweight wrestling champion. You and a commission pulled a Randy dazzy on a great Freddie Blassie, Ayatollah Blassie. But I guarantee you, now we're going to make amends. We're going to win the battle royal and then get a match with Hulk Hogan. And this is the world champion and refer to him as such. Well, I am not going to take the liberty of referring to the Iron Sheik, Sheikalahani, as the world champion. Not after this past Monday night. Uh, you speak keep quiet
3: don't interrupt the champion
0: when he's talking i'm sorry gentlemen we are out of time i thank you Big 20 man over the top row battle royal fifty thousand dollars to go to the winner here is a young gentleman uh, a man, I should say, that of course has a lot of fans in Southern California, the great one from Mexico, Tito Santana.
3: Gene, thank you very much. You know, I was in Tampa, and I watched LA win the Super Bowl, the Raiders, baby. And now I'm here
0: tonight for a chance to win, as far as I'm concerned, the Super Bowl in professional wrestling, the Battle Royal, Gene. There's a lot of money involved. quiero la gente mexicana que me está escuchando. Es una lucha para mí muy importante. La batalla royale, la lucha más peligrosa en la lucha libre. La única manera que puede perder uno es que lo avienten de, de, de dentro del ring hasta, hasta el piso. Se le puede terminar la carrera uno. Pero es una lucha que necesito para mi gente, para mí, para Tito Santana. You know, I can't wait to step into, into this match because it's, there's a lot of things involved in the battle royal. There's a lot of danger, but I'm going to give it everything I got. Arriba! I thank you very much, the great one, Tito Santana, king of the battle royals. I'm certain you probably saw him this past week of the David Letterman show. I am talking about none other from Grenoble, France, the one, the only, Andre the Giant. Tonight, Olympic Auditorium, 20 man over the top rope battle royal,
4: fifty thousand American dollars. You know, it's nice to get back at the Olympic Auditorium, but our old the promoter put the ring strong enough to hold the 20 guys? Because you can be can you believe how much weight will be in that ring? Well the way I've got it calculated,
0: Andre, close to six thousand pounds in the ring all at one time.
4: That's that's the way and there's lots of money and everybody's gonna fight for it. And I will be one of them. Maybe they're gonna get me out first. But the people call me the king of the Wild and I'm gonna to try to stay the king of the Wild and I'm gonna to try
0: to win again. I thank you very much, ladies and gentlemen. He is Andre the Giant. He will be one of 20 men tonight at Olympic Auditorium, vying for $50,000 in a 20-man over the top rope battle royal. Plus, by the way, eight other exciting bouts to follow. Andre the Giant, Tony Atlas, Ivan Putski, Santana, Mel Mascaris, The Sheik, Sergeant Slaughter, Mr. Fuji, Iron Mike Sharp. That list goes on and on. Tonight, it is going to be a night to remember. You won't want to miss it at Olympic Auditorium. We'll see you there.
1: There is a lot to unpack here. First of all, I (laughs) lied. That that aired on the 30th. My mistake. I thought it was the 23rd. Uh, But... First of all, I, I want to start by thanking Lou Kippelman, who he made that audio sound about as good as a person possibly could. Thank you, Lou. First, Fred Blassie tell, says that Ivan Putsky couldn't count to 50,000. Neither can I. I don't have the time.
2: <laughs> well, uh, <laughs> I, I kind of caught what Blassie said, too. And I don't know if that was the best, uh, insult of, uh, Putzky I had heard, but, uh, Blassie had just such a great delivery on his lines. I mean, even if they didn't make any sense, it was still great.
1: Yeah, no, definitely. And Putski was a riot out there. I can pay my income taxes with thirty thousand dollars.
2: <laughs> if only Rick Flair had been listening.
1: Oh yeah, really? Poor <laughs> Rick. Uh, he going out wrestling in every battle royal he can, trying to catch up with the IRS. Now, you noticed when the Iron Sheik was doing his interview. He starts speaking in Arabic and Okerlund just like, Oh, just stop. Now I know you can speak English Sheik. And the very next interview, like 60 seconds later, Tito Santana starts speaking Spanish. And I I, I know you guys just heard the audio, but like I saw the video as well as Tito is speaking Spanish, Gene is beaming at him like a, like a, like a, 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 like a, a child who's just got a, a bike for his birthday or something. It was like, he was in love.
2: <laughs> well, uh, you know, it was, it was a simpler time. I, you know, the announcers looked at the good guys as like these wonderful people that you wanted to associate with and, The heels were the vermin of the earth that you wanted to run from. So uh, it was a much more simple time.
1: It really was. I mean, you know, just uh, Oakland barking at the Sheik and then turning right around and letting Tito speak all the Spanish he wants. Steve, you were there. Gene was a lot to get used to. I mean, he had just started with the World Wrestling Federation less than a month ago. Vince McMahon used to be the guy, very low key doing these interviews. And Gene, like you couldn't even unplug the
2: guy. He was crazy yeah I, I mean at first I really didn't care for him at all why oh, I, 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 I was so I was so used to vince and and the way Vince did things and and Vince you know being it was his promotion I mean he knew what to accentuate what to really push heavily and what to de-emphasize and and here's here's Oakland just going to town and everything like you know making everything sound like you uh gotta come down to the next uh county fair or something yeah. like that but uh but but you know for me he won me over over time uh he was pretty cheesy the first six months especially when he did when he attempted to do color commentary he was really really bad at that but once he chilled out a little bit and kind of became his more normal self i i, I kind of enjoyed his uh, shtick
1: i have grown to appreciate gene okerlund as time has gone on but i mean I, you know mid 80s Late 80s, I could not stand him. I, <laughs> you know, now, now I've grown to like him. I, I appreciate his act and what he was doing out there. But I mean, he was a lot to get used to. And I don't think I ever did. Every time he would announce that there was a show coming up for the Boston Garden, which is located on Causeway Street. Every single time he would say, Rocking and reeling on
2: Causeway Street. Come <laughs> on down. Like every week he would do this. I, I think I think what warmed him up to me probably was once his uh, his buddies from the AWA started to filter in. Uh, besides Lord Alfred Hayes uh, getting in, people like Bobby the Brain that he really had this tremendous chemistry with, and, and seeing you know Bobby insult him a few times and put him in his place, uh, it, it kind of humanized him a bit, and uh, and I think he gets away from this carnival Barker stuff after a while. But, uh, but to change gears just a little bit, I want to kind of give kudos to uh, our super producer, Lou Kippelman, who uh, let me uh, have a reminder that uh, when we were talking about Toronto earlier, uh, George Scott's booking in the WWF, uh, Lou said that he may have had points in the p- promotion, which I think is probably correct. And also uh, that Larry Manisick had been running opposition promotion in St. Louis to the St. Louis Wrestling Club with Harley Race, Ganya Geigel, and Pat O'Connor. And that's uh, when uh, Vince actually cooperated with him uh, for a brief time with Mattisik uh, in these early, early days of the St. Louis uh, invasion.
1: Well, thank you again, Lou. You know, I just wish we had audio of Andre the Giant's appearance on David Letterman show. That sounds really good. Our wish came true, we have it, Andre the Giant on the David Letterman Show. I believe this aired for real, or at least it was recorded on January 23rd, 1984. Let's hear that segment now.
5: My first guest uh, will be working tonight before a capacity crowd at Madison Square Garden. I'm talking about Dr. Krypton, no, no, no. Um, He is said to be the largest and highest paid and best known wrestler in the entire world. This man stands seven feet four inches tall, weighs in at about five hundred pounds. Please welcome Andre the Giant. Oh boy. How are you? Fine. Can I can I get you a mimosa? <laughs> <laughs> no, thank you. What? Uh, who are you going to be wrestling tonight, by the way? Anybody that we would have heard of?
4: It'll be uh, me and Tony Atlas and Rocky Johnson against the three Samuels. Yeah! <laughs> 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 uh,
5: this. How, how many people uh, does the garden hold? Twenty thousand in, in the 20,000? Uh, Upstairs,
4: I get uh, almost twenty-three thousand people, and downstairs I get seven thousand people.
5: Oh my! uh... Now, what what is the reaction of uh... the average person when they see you, like when you go into a bar or something?
4: Everybody get out. They they all clear out.
5: Uh, do you, do you find that people are are uh, uh, frightened by you, or, or do they want to pick a fight with you? Do you ever run into that?
4: No, no, no.
5: Yeah. What what do they say when they see a man your size,
4: or when they see you? They can't, <laughs> they can't believe it. They just look at me. And...
5: Yeah uh... what about traveling uh... you uh... hotel beds or are they a problem no, get...
4: i try to find a hotel where they got a king-size bed yeah. the worst is when i go in Japan, all those cars are so small Sure. I, even in a hotel, I, I can go through the door, i can go to the bathroom
5: but the nature of your job, you're traveling all the time, aren't you? like 300, 320 nights a year yes yeah, now what about plane travel? does that get old after a while? awful? Mm-hmm.
4: I go in first class, but I don't drink mine was it. Yeah. <laughs>
5: uh, what about airplane food? Is there any way for you to get filled up on a flight?
4: Oh yeah. Yeah. Those really nice. They give me two or three plates. Yeah.
5: Uh, now speaking of food, you own a restaurant. Is it Montreal?
4: Yes. Now what kind a of French a re- restaurant?
5: French restaurant, and um, expensive place?
4: No, just a nice place, good food.
5: Yeah. And uh, do you ever work there?
4: Yeah, I eat there.
5: <laughs> you, you sure you eat there, but yeah. uh, but do you ever go in no. and, and greet the customers as they're coming in? No, no. Yeah. <laughs> uh, look, how much time do we have here? Okay, we gotta we gotta go away for a commercial. But you can, do you mind okay. sticking around, Andre? No, I don't. Okay, mind. great. If you stay right here, uh, we'll continue talking with Andre We'll be right back. Oh. The giant is here. Andre, have you ever uh, been injured in the uh, uh, ring?
4: Many times. And
5: uh, is this uh, what we have here? Is this was this the result yep. of a, a ring that was, injury?
4: That was the last time I right. injured.
5: Good lord. Um, what what size shoe do you wear? Twenty. Twenty good heavens let's just uh i'm gonna get the stage hands in here to help him with this uh what do you do when you're not wrestling you you're traveling all of the time what do you do for fun if you just want to just have a, a good night uh you know you got a weekend off what would you do on a saturday
4: i go home i go in north carolina uh-huh. i got a house in North Carolina.
5: and what, what do you do to relax there
4: i just enjoy my time over there and walk in the woods and i got some cows and just have a good time yeah. in the
5: farm and you i know i know you enjoy drinking beer don't you
4: uh don't anymore.
5: You did quit drinking beer? Yes. Now, you I, used to have a really, uh, an incredible appetite
4: for drinking, didn't you? Right. For beer, yes.
5: Is it true that you, in one sitting, drank 117 beers?
4: Yes. one night. Yeah!
5: And did uh, d- 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 that, were you drunk at the end of that?
4: I don't remember, I think I passed out. <laughs> uh, but you don't drink anymore? Not since uh, 14 months ago I quit. Yeah, uh,
5: you feel better for not drinking?
4: Yeah, because when I was drinking, beer, I used to weigh 560 pounds.
5: And you've trimmed down now to? Well, right now I'm
4: 470.
5: Yeah, I was going to say you look, you look about 470. Uh, <clears throat> well, congratulations. Yeah. Now, in, Thank you. Uh, how much longer do you think you'll be wrestling?
4: I don't know. Maybe tonight be my last match with you. No, we never no, know. Uh, we never know what going to happen in the ring.
5: What What would you do after you uh, uh, your career was over? I
4: don't know. Maybe to stay in the farm or go walk in the restaurant, in my restaurant, yeah. take out my business. And yeah.
5: Well, it sounds like you're in pretty good know. shape. you got the, the farm and the and the restaurant and uh, and you don't drink anymore. So what the hell? You're doing? I drink some white wine. You have a little white wine. Now, how much yes. white wine would you have at a meal?
4: <laughs> About two or three bottles
5: two or three bottles. Yes. So in other words, just fill up the shoe and... Um, now, uh, this afternoon we talked around in the office about having you lift me up. And you, you just recently said, you're not gonna lift me up, right? Why don't you want to lift me up? It's okay, I mean, I'm, I'm sort of I, I glad. I'll
4: tell you why, because one time I was doing an interview like this on TV and the guy wanted me to pick him up. So I pick him up and two weeks later he tried to give me a lawsuit because he said I heard him.
5: Oh no, now who was that?
4: Oh, I don't go to mention his
5: name. <laughs> no, no. Tell, was, no. Is, is it uh, somebody we might know? No. I bet it was Merv Griffin, wasn't it? <laughs> 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 uh, no. You can't tell us, huh? No, I don't want to see. Okay. Well, what time does the, the match start at uh, Madison Square they start Garden? It starts at 8 o'clock. All right. Well, you got to get going, don't you?
4: Oh, no. I just stay all night.
5: <laughs> <laughs> well, sure. That's what we were hoping. We... Uh... Uh, sure, Andre. Of course, you uh, you make yourself at home. It was a nice uh, nice meeting, you, good sir. Good luck, to you. you.
1: I would like to once again stress that this footage is used strictly for review purposes. It is available currently as I speak on YouTube. It's it's worth checking out. I know this is a wrestling podcast, and I don't want to make it a, a long love letter to David Letterman, but what a treasure that guy was. In the early 80s, mid-80s. I mean, he's out there on NBC in a rugby shirt and cockies hosting a
2: talk show. Oh, he, he was incredible. And, and I mean, I, I liked it when he had the bizarre guests on. And I guess this would kind of qualify Andre as a guest. But uh, yeah. but the more bizarre guests, like people like Brother Theodore, that that's the kind of guy I really was hoping to see. Yeah. <laughs> I remember Brother Theodore or, uh,
1: Bud Melman. They're just great <laughs> stuff. I mean, and he's such a riot from, is that how the plumbing works in Canada to I'll bet it was Merv Griffin.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I was, I was actually laughing while listening to that. And, uh, and I, I was, I was comparing Letterman's, uh, style of, uh, interviewing Andre to comparing him to how Vince would interview him on TV. Like, uh, when Vince would say on the, the old TNT show, uh, Uh, Andre, where did you get those boots? Uh, Paso Texas. It was it was much more much more lifelike here on the Letterman Show. Uh, David did a hell of a job.
1: Absolutely, and you know it's it's worth checking out. Assuming it's still out there, uh, they were doing uh, uh, they were showing Andre's uh, leg cast when he had his leg broken in in Rochester, New York. And I mean, just Andre is so huge next to David Letterman. He he's a wall compared to Letterman.
2: Yeah, and I mean, if anybody knows, David Letterman is really tall himself. I think he's actually like six six. So, um, it, and, you know, Andre is supposedly 6'11", but uh, his mass, his uh, size, his hands, his head, everything is so large. So he he made uh, Letterman look like a little boy.
1: That is, I mean, it's entirely correct. Definitely worked, worth checking out. Andre, you feel a little bit bad on a couple of things. Number one, he's like, oh, what do you do on your time off? And Andre's like, oh, I like to walk in the woods. It's like, someone get this guy a PlayStation 4. <laughs>
2: I was uh, on a different uh, subject. I, I had uh, seen a, a recent shoot interview with uh, Duke Doherty, Pete the Duke uh, Doherty, and uh, and they asked him, well, do you have any Andre stories? And he said that one time he was at a, uh, a Japanese restaurant with Andre, and he's sitting there, and they're all having a meal together with some of the other wrestlers. And and some fan came in, this big burly fan came in, and wanted an autograph him, Andre, and and he comes up to Andre, this kid, and and he he says, I know, Andre. Can I get your autograph?" And and Andre just moaning, he's just going like, uh, you know, moaning, and, and not not, and then he finally says, uh, "Go away, go away." And uh, and then uh, Doherty said that uh, at that time. Uh, Andre had a young Japanese woman under the table pleasuring him during his meal. And then the, the girl came up and then she had uh, ate some of Andre's leftovers. But it was quite the story. Oh, that is too much. And it sounds like the WWF
1: on the road, mid-80s. Uh, nothing surprises you.
2: Anything goes.
1: <laughs> yeah, and one thing, I feel like a dummy. I was up in Montreal so many times in, you know, the mid to late 80s. And I thought about, you know, oh, maybe I should check out Andre's restaurant. And then at the end of the day, because I'm I'm like, nah, like that would be a heck of a memory just walking in there and just being able to say, hey, I ate at Andre's restaurant. You,
2: you know, I, I think the, the little I know of it, I think it was a French restaurant, obviously, because that's where he came from. And uh, yeah, funny to know that uh, Hogan's wife, uh, Linda, had a French restaurant here in the Tampa Clearwater area maybe uh, another 10 years later. So it's kind of funny.
1: Oh, that's interesting. I, I de- didn't know that. D- Dave asked Andre, what was he going to do after he retired? And it, you know, I'm not saying this in a callous way. What he did was he died. He died January, 1993. He had been touring Japan as, as late as December, 1992. I mean, talk about a guy who, you know, all he knew was the wrestling business and he just didn't want to get out
2: yeah he he was really addicted to the lifestyle of wrestling and and I think what his final days were like um, after his final wrestling tour, I think his I think his father had passed away and he went back to uh, to France to be with the family. and I think that's maybe where he passed away and and uh, and then his his remains were too large to ship back to the states. It was something like that. But um, yeah, the, the Andre story is really a tragic story in so many ways. Yeah, well, I mean, at
1: least he loved what he was doing. I, I mean, I remember, you know, Vince couldn't get rid of him at one point, and he was going to wrestle for Herb Abrams, UWF, and Vince just said, all right, Andre, I'll give you something. You can be in the Bushwhackers' corner. And I remember in, in 91, the Bushwhackers are wrestling whoever, whatever heel tag team, and Andre, who couldn't get around get a, a without two canes, is using the canes to slam the ring post to distract the heel. It was a big comedy spot, but to me, seeing Andre the Giant like that, it, it wasn't fun.
2: It, it, yeah, it was very sad to see him like that and hump, hunched over and, and no longer uh, you know easy to get around. And but there is there is one interesting photo out there of uh, of uh, Sean Mooney interviewing Andre. It um, looks like it was from an MSG broadcast. And on the other side of the interview, the uh, other side of Sean Mooney is the Undertaker. And the two of them are kind of having a stare down. And it's kind of like, what if? You know, what if Andre had been able to uh stick around into the Undertaker era and they just they just kind of missed each other and that's kind of unfortunate.
1: Yeah, that that would have been it wouldn't have been a good match, but it would have been an interesting rivalry. Absolutely. All right, let's talk about what the WWF has been doing. I don't see any results from uh January twenty-fourth or twenty-fifth, but in the on January twenty-sixth, they're out in the Glens Falls Civic Center. Here's a match that I would have been interested in Pat Patterson challenging Don Morocco for the Intercontinental Championship. We know now in hindsight that Patterson's career was would, would quickly be coming to an end. I didn't know that on January 26, 1984. Uh, Patterson had just got do- gotten done feuding with Ivan Koloff. he was in semi-retirement but I, I would have been interested in seeing in seeing that match.
2: No, I, I definitely would have, too. Uh, uh, Patterson could still go. I mean, he had some really good matches with Koloff in 83. And uh, he was one of those guys, kind of like a Pedro Morales, and that he was always in the mix for the Intercontinental title. Same with Ken Patera. Any of those guys uh, I'd be interested in seeing.
1: Oh, yeah. Uh, let me see. We have Bob Backlund versus Paul Orndorf going to a double countout. I'm sure that was originally advertised as a title match. And then we have Andre the Giant coming to Glens Falls, teaming with Rocky Johnson and Tony Atlas against the three Samoans.
2: Yeah, that, that's a, a typical match that would. Um, in fact, that was the same match that uh, Andre was pushing for the on the Letterman show, the same match they had in the Garden that's uh, right. So, so uh, yeah, I mean, that would be a, a decent uh, way to finish the night uh, uh, with WWF card. I will make mention that on the prior Glenn Fall show, which I think was back in November, none other than Don Carnotel wrestled on that show. And he was finishing up his somewhat brief, probably about a six-month WWF run. And then he moved back to the Carolinas and went back to Mid-Atlantic Wrestling with the Crockett's. But uh, Don Carnotel passed away in real life last week, so uh, our sympathies go out to him. And, uh, and uh, John, what are your memories of Don Carnotal?
1: I mean, I just remember being very confused by his 1983 WWF run. You know, he had been the NWA Tag Team Champions with Sergeant Slaughter. So you're looking at a guy who is, you know, seemingly on the way up and he got no push whatsoever in the WWF. I didn't get it. He was a really good wrestler. Um, you know, I, I said this before, there are some guys who get a break, you know, that Robert Gibson got a break. He, he's a guy, oh, you know, you can put him in a tag team and it worked out, um, you know, Bobby Eaton, it all worked out for him. I mean, there's an alternative universe where these guys are just, you know, Memphis guys their entire lives. Uh, Don Kernodal to me, was a guy that you had to put in a tag team because he was just that talented. I mean, you know, sticking with Tim Horner and give him a name and give him a manager in, you know, 87, 88, 86, 85. I think that would have worked.
2: Yeah, I, I um. um... Kind of like you during his brief WWF run, I was very impressed. I mean, I thought he fit right in as far as somebody that uh, it was kind of welcome to see him there. I knew what his background was from the NWA, and uh, it, it's funny to to think about him now. As far as uh, you know, in this era, they brought him in basically as himself. They didn't really give him a gimmick. But I'm thinking like years later. Um, you know when vince was giving everybody these stupid cheesy gimmicks i could just imagine uh, don Kernodal would have been like the uh the sandwich shop man and yeah. <laughs> you know sandwich maker or something because he kind of looked like an ordinary regular guy and uh, maybe he'd be a, a sub guy from subway or something but uh, it, it's funny uh, to to, uh, to think of what he could have been but I, I do like that era where you didn't have to become uh, the you know uh, the teal hopper or the, the goon or some cheesy gimmick. It was nice to see him as Don Carnotel, this this you know fine wrestler from another territory.
1: Yeah, and we're obviously by the end of nineteen eighty four, Vince will be gimmicking it. An- gimmicking it up but i mean it was just bizarre you know Kernodal goes from being a major star in mid-atlantic in 82 to nothing in the wwf in 1983 and then he goes back to mid-atlantic and almost immediately wins the tag titles with bob orton jr and then he gets the titles back with ivan koloff
2: Interesting, interesting, and it maybe in Vince's own way, he's saying like, "Hey, we're so much better than the uh, compos- <laughs> the opposition. That uh, you know, this guy is only uh, like a jobber in our league. We could be a." champion in their league. Maybe that was what he was thinking.
1: Maybe. I mean, that's what it looked like to me. Or I, you know, at the time I didn't get it. All right, let's go the next night, Detroit, Michigan, uh, January 27th, 1984 WWF. What they did in Detroit was interesting. Uh, They used guys like Jerry Graham, Jr. Chris Carter, Don Kent, uh, John Bonello on the undercard. And, yeah, I've mentioned this before. I think that's really smart. You know, why have guys in matches that, you know, aren't going to draw? They're just filling up the card. You know, why pay for trans on these guys when you have wrestlers from the area available and willing to work?
2: No, that, that made sense, especially in these early days when the WWF wasn't really a known commodity in these new markets. Um, and interesting to note that Jerry Graham Jr. had just been. Uh, Mad Dog Managoff. I think the St. Louis taping, uh, and they realized that wasn't going to go anywhere. I think because Piper came in as a manager, and they just um, what he really wasn't used as Mad Dog Managoff going forward. So
1: okay yeah I I was not familiar until you guys you and Lou updated me uh the main event for the Detroit show is Don Morocco versus Jimmy Snuka. uh defeat Snuka via countout uh, Morocco and Snuka must have been tired of wrestling each other by this point
2: oh yeah they, they had gone all over the all over the world and back again and uh and the Don Kent against John Bonello John Bonello ended up becoming a WWF referee. And Don Kent had been uh, one of the kangaroos and one of their later incarnations, and he must have been about 120 years old by this point.
1: Oh, yeah. And uh, if I understand correctly, if I am identifying him correctly, Benello got into some trouble. But that said, I'm not sure when this aired, um, but it's right around this time. They had the old Victory Corner talk segment with Robert DeBoard. Let's go to that now with Dr. D. David Schultz once again for review purposes.
0: I take you to Victory Corner and the views of its associate publisher, Mr. Robert DeBoer. So, to Victory Corner we go.
1: Thank you very much, and welcome once again to Victory Corner. This week's special guest is Dr. D, a relative newcomer to the World Wrestling Federation, but a seasoned professional whose reputation has preceded him. Our readers want to know, Dr. D, what's brought
3: you into the World Wrestling Federation? What's brought me here is competition. You know, everywhere I've been, everywhere I go, they know the doctor has been there. And I turn on my TV set and I see people like Superfly. And I see people like... Bob Back. I see people like the Samoans, I see people like Andre the Giant, it's World Wrestling Federation, the competition, and I'm looking for competition, you know I spend most of my time roaming the streets, going to the honky-tonks in the bars, looking for somebody to fight, there ain't many men like that that go around looking for somebody to fight, you know what I'm saying? and then after i do that and i ain't got nothing else to do i turn on the television and i just dreamed of meeting all the professional wrestlers one at a time and determine who is number one who's the best and right here they've got a world championship belt that everybody in the world wants to go after you know what i'm saying you're mighty quiet once i started talking you couldn't say nothing else just rap all you wanted to do is talk and run on at the mouth and the cameras come on now you just sit here and be quiet well, we'll have
0: an opportunity to talk again in
1: the near future.
0: Well,
3: maybe I'm not through talking right now. Maybe I got some more things I want to say. Can
1: we get back to ringside?
3: Well, I guess you can. If you want to, you'll probably cut me off I say no, because I can tell you're that type of guy. You're
1: right. Now back to ringside. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> You know, one thing about the WWF in this era, specifically 1984 and 1985, which is what the show is going to be about, you can just tell that the WWF sometimes put no thought into what they were putting out there because I mean, to me, you give this sh- a show like this Victory Corner with Robert DeBoard, like you give it a trial first before you put it on television because obviously this thing is a bomb.
2: Yeah, yeah, I, I think the, Missy's manner must be ten times better than this, <laughs> and that never saw the light of day. How about that?
1: No, uh, no, it did not. They at one point they were available on YouTube, and it just was not Missy's forte. Not being the star of the show, I mean, Deboard was out there. You know, Schultz is yelling at him, and he looked nervous. He looked like he was going to stain himself.
2: It's I'm like, you know, that's probably what Vince wanted him to do just stammer yeah. and be intimidated by, you know, someone like Schultz and, and some of the other large wrestlers. And he was kind of a meek a little guy. And, uh, but but uh, you know he played his role well. I guess he was just kind of this milquetoast, bland guy. Yeah. And I guess I guess if you know that you've got Roddy Piper w- waiting in their wings to take over, yeah, you know, let's get this bland, mediocre, boring guy as the host until Piper shows up, and then Piper's going to reinvent the wheel for you. So. Oh,
1: you know what, though? That's exactly what I'm talking about. Like the original concept of Piper's Pit was going to be that he was going to write an article or at least ghostwrite an article for the the magazine. And then they just decided to throw Roddy Piper out there and do Piper's Pit. Like that was not the plan coming in.
2: (laughs) Well, I guess if they called an audible, they definitely did the right call.
1: Oh, yeah, for sure. Um, One thing also about this segment I had forgotten what a good talker Dr. D. David Schultz was. And, you know, obviously by the end of this year or no, actually by the beginning of 1985, he would be gone from the WWF and his career would basically be over. And I mean, he was so talented. It's a, it's a shame he had to lose his mind and go after Mr. T because he was a big guy. He could work. And obviously, as we all just heard, he could talk.
2: Well, that definitely he could talk, and he he was definitely over with the audience. I mean, we, he was a guy you could believe in, and he would end up having some great matches with Hogan, and and a big match at the Garden with Piper and Orton and Andre involved. But after that kind of a early push, it seemed like the next six months of of. Uh, David Schultz in the WWF, just kind of, he just kind of got lost in the mix. I don't know yeah. if was, there was just too many newcomers coming in and other people, or maybe Vince just didn't trust him, but he just really got lost along the way.
1: And we're going to be talking about that as this podcast goes on. A lot of wrestlers came to the WWF and really, as Steve said, just got lost in the mix. I mean, there were so many, you know, the WWF was basically hiring everyone and it was being it was becoming harder and harder to stand out amongst that giant crowd.
2: Yeah. And I think he had some of the great uh, intangibles you would need to become uh, one of the standout people. I mean, he had a lot of ability uh, in imposing look, great interview, but there was something just kind of missing with his overall presentation. And I think part of it was, you know, Vince wanted this to be um, wrestling for families and for kids, especially. And seeing this super, super redneck uh, mentality, this uh, persona, may have been just a little bit too hardcore for his uh, dream audience.
1: No, I agree with you. Schultz was definitely, he was he was a, a scary guy. All right, let's talk about championship wrestling that aired January 28th, 1984. And of course, the first thing they show us is Hulk Hogan winning the WWF title from the Iron Sheik. Steve, we look back, it's been, you know, almost 40 years. And we were, we didn't really know it, or at least I didn't really know it, know it, but we were seeing history unfold before our eyes, you know, with this brand new guy, Hulk Hogan is now the WWF champion. I mean, he hadn't even been on TV for like three or four weeks and he won the, won the belt.
2: Yeah. He, uh, I mean, he replaced Bob Backlund who had been, uh, a long-term champion a six year champion and uh hulk had so much flash and you know his jive his interview and uh his larger than life persona and larger than life body i think people just immediately took to him you didn't have to have a a a slow build with him he was seemingly over with the audience almost immediately and uh sheik was a great uh, person for him to uh, beat because i think hogan gave him the rub uh from the championship and uh and uh, Sheik is going to end up having a great feud with Slaughter as time goes on, and um, I-, I think Iron Sheik, in retrospect, uh, I-, I like his the you know the, he was a different worker than a lot of the guys. So he had different style. He had those big overhead chops that were kind of unique, and I loved the uh, loaded uh, loaded boot gimmick. I'd like to see that gimmick come back here in twenty twenty one.
1: Well, that's a good point. We may very well see that. Next matchup is Mass Superstar pinning Steve Lombardi, and then we get a major surprise. The return of Greg Valentine, who defeats Ken Jugan with uh, the figure four leg lock. Valentine had been in the middle of a babyface turn in Mid-Atlantic. He had uh, already turned babyface. Now he's back as a heel in the WWF, but wait a minute. We were used to seeing Greg Valentine with the Grand Wizard, and obviously that's no longer an option. The Wizard had passed away. This is Greg's third tour of the WWF. I would never have guessed that Lou Albano would be the guy to take over to manage Greg Valentine.
2: Yeah, uh, they uh, they ended up having a decent chemistry together. I mean, when people think of Valentine, only they think immediately of uh, Lou Albano as like maybe you thought of Morocco and Albano or Morocco and Fuji, but uh, they they had a good uh, a working relationship during this time. And uh, again, we mentioned earlier on the show this week uh, we mentioned George Scott's influence. Uh, George Scott uh, actually gave uh, Mass Superstar one of his big breaks in wrestling. He gives. Uh, credit George Scott for that and Greg uh, Valentine coming in another George Scott guy from the Carolinas. And he was really uh, a great addition to to WWF. And and he would become um, a major uh, player as far as the Intercontinental title and the tag team titles over the next two, three years.
1: Oh, yeah. I mean, Valentine, like I said, this was his third tour. I was a little bit surprised because I didn't know what was going on, that Vince was basically going to hire everybody. Um, But... I was surprised he was back so soon because he had been gone for less than a year and a half. But anyway, he's back and he's with Albano, and that was all a big surprise. Tonga Kid beats Bill Dixon with a sunset flip. Then we have Brian Blair making his television debut for the WWF, pinning Charlie Fulton with an abdominal stretch that turns into an inside cradle.
2: Yeah, I think, um, Vince here is, uh, setting his sights on anybody who is like really young and, uh, uh, you know, entering their prime. Uh, you mentioned B Brian Blair, uh, a name that will be coming up later in the program is Mike Rotundo, who's wrestling in the, uh, either in Florida or the Carolinas. And, uh, any young talent just approaching their prime, right? you can see Vince is the uh, promoter just starting to salivate, uh, thinking that he can get him on on their roster, on his roster.
1: Oh yeah, um, I mean, I, I mean, Vince went after everybody though. I mean, he went went after the spoiler. He he took on <laughs> Mr. Wrestling too. I I mean, just you know, if if you want to leave the promotion you're at now, come to the WWF. We'll have you.
2: Yeah, he um, he really got a, a, a huge roster, and it, it, it just shows. I mean, I, I think we all like to romantically think about, oh, you know, if Vern had done this, or if Jim Crockett had done that, uh, that one simple move would have changed everything, and Vince would be out of business. But you got to remember, he was paying WR in New York to have that show on at midnight. Then he goes to all these other markets like L.A. and San Francisco and Detroit and blah blah blah. He's paying all these markets in the country TV time to get on their airwaves when guys like Vern were used to, you know, TV stations paying him to get his show on the air. And, yep. you know, Vince had changed everything. And and there was really no chess moves on the board that these other promoters could do uh, to really beat him. I mean, uh, I mean, other than, um, you know, get a guy like Dick Ebersol, but they didn't have the wherewithal to get someone like him.
1: No, they wouldn't have even thought about it. And like, you know, not only did you mention that they had expanded to Los Angeles, San Francisco, Phoenix, Detroit, places in Ohio, they already had, as you mentioned, New York, but they had Boston, Baltimore, Pittsburgh, Philly, you know, they had big cities
2: oh, yeah, the the wWF the classic wWF cities from the Bruno days and the backland days. Uh, I mean, they were they were essentially uh, as you said many times, john, they they were selling out throughout all those years. And now they were taking that East Coast dominance and going to these new markets where you know there hadn't been much wrestling in a long, long time. And, and Vince was failing in a lot of those other markets where the wrestling was very competitive. I mean, he did terrible in places like New Orleans and the Carolinas, and and he couldn't even get into some buildings in parts of the country where, just like he had locked some people out of MSG and the New York buildings, he couldn't get in other buildings in certain areas. But he was just certainly getting a lot of revenue in from all these different sources, that's for sure.
1: Oh, very much so. And I, I forgot to mention Washington, DC, which is not exactly a small city. Tito Santana pins Bob Bradley after a flying forearm. I mean, we'll we'll get into this when it happens. I was I was taken aback when Tito Santana won the intercontinental championship, but looking back, hindsight being twenty twenty, they were pushing
2: him hard. No, they were. I mean, he, he had a great look. He had great ability in the ring. I mean, uh, I think steamboat is looked upon as the premier baby face worker of the eighties, but Santana was not that far behind him. I mean, he could do a lot in the ring and find a lot of good matches and he had a really uh, marketable look. And, uh, you know, the Spanish population is probably yep. one of the largest in the whole country. We're going to L.A. We're going to new markets. You know, why not push a Tito Santana? And it was a brilliant move on Vince's part.
1: No, well, I, I agree with you wholeheartedly. Mr. Fuji and Tiger Chung Lee defeat Jose Luis Rivera and Frank Williams. <laughs> Mr. Fuji has been here now for about two and a half years. And then we leave with Eddie Gilbert pinning Butcher Paul Fajon and three minutes and 40 seconds. Eddie Gilbert in 1983 suffered a severe severe auto accident, and it was good to see him back.
2: Yeah, he he had a lot of ability, and uh, it's kind of uh, uh, very sad that he never really got to become – the Eddie Gilbert we would later know and love in uh, UWF and other promotions in the WWF. Here he's just kind of um you know a backland protege, young guy, yes, just starting out. He doesn't really get a chance to show any real personality. He shows some good ability in the ring, but uh, what he brought to the UWF and some other promotions in the, in the early nineties, uh, what he did in the, many of the independent shows in Memphis. Uh, he was uh, uh, really a good worker, and he should have been given a chance in the WWF when they started to get stale in the late eighties.
1: I agree with you. As a matter of fact, uh, Eddie Gilbert talked about he got, he did get an offer from the WWF, and Bill Watts, you know, he went to Bill Watts and you know said, "Look, I'd like to get out of my contract, give my notice, whatever." And and Watts said to him, "Oh, that's sad, Eddie, because I was just about to make you the Booker," and. <laughs> Gilbert, you know, was like that was. Gilbert said that was the one thing Watts could could have said to him that made him stay in the UWF. And of course, Eddie was Eddie was an excellent talent, and he knew how to use himself well in the eighties. That kind of turned around in the nineties. But I'll tell you what, not much happened on All Star Wrestling. Of course, Hulk Hogan versus Iron Sheik aired once again, and Greg Valentine made his return to all star wrestling. Uh, let's talk about the big show in Los Angeles that they have been pushing hard. Uh, not, you know, not to harp on this, but again, I think it's smart to use local talent. Uh, Tony Rocco beats Irish Mickey Doyle. uh, Excuse me. They fight to a draw in the opener. And then we have Iron Sheik defeating Salvatore Belomo. Uh, Sergeant Slaughter beats Ivan Putsky via DQ. Uh, Tony Atlas in a singles match as tag team champion against Adrian Adonis. I didn't like this one. Tony Gurria defeats John Tolos. If you're going to have someone defeat an L.A. legend like Tolos, And yeah, I know he's in his mid fifties. I mean, have someone higher up on the card than Tony Korea, nothing against Tony, but you know, this is kind of a, a misuse of Tolos in Los Angeles, in my opinion.
2: No, I I, I know. It, it seems it seems sacrilegious just look, looking at the results on the paper. It seems shocking to to think, uh, especially because they weren't doing anything with Gurria. I mean, with yeah. another within another year or two, Gurria was just an enhancement guy, and uh, so to have him beat Tolos is just it's obscene. It really is. It's sickening. Yeah.
1: Not crazy. Neil Mascaris defeats another Los Angeles guy in Jack Armstrong. Then we have the tag team of Andre the Giant and Tito Santana against uh, defeating Mr. Fuji and and Tiger Chung Lee. And then to no one's surprise, Andre the Giant wins the 20,000 to the 20 man battle royal to win the imaginary $50,000 prize.
2: Yeah, and uh, as we've discussed in some of the prior episodes, uh, that was such a big deal in Los Angeles, the Battle yeah. Royale, as it was in the Cow Palace in San Francisco, too. So it was good that at least, uh, even though they were doing something really stupid, having Tolos do a job for Gurria, at least they were paying homage to the great uh, days of the territory there.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And and once again, though, if you, if you look... At this card, it's like Battle Royal Night was so absurd in the WWF. I mean, you've got Slaughter and Putsky as like the one good match, and all the other matches are kind of, oh, Atlas and and Adonis, and all the other matches are just kind of squash matches.
2: Yeah, it's interesting that Adonis is working some West Coast dates here, and he even did this in 83 a little bit, Uh, but he isn't really featured on WWF TV yet, Uh, but he would, of course, uh, be later on.
1: Yeah, exactly. Uh, Same night. Baltimore Civic Center, big arena. We have Rocky Johnson defeating the mass Superstar by, by DQ. So we've got uh, Johnson and Atlas, the tag team champions on different coasts. Uh, Jimmy Snuka defeats Don Morocco by countout. Oh, my goodness. I mean, bald, I, I can see Detroit not being sick of Snuka versus Morocco. But Baltimore, it, it's the end of January. They ran the big angle during the summer. And we're, we're still out there with Snuka and Morocco, and if it's a count-out, they're probably coming back next week, next month.
2: Well, well you know, I guess in wrestling we've talked about these feuds that just uh, maybe seem to kill both guys uh, over time, uh, and maybe that's what uh, they talk about, uh, Buzz Sawyer against uh, uh, Tommy Rich. Uh, uh, it, it's just one of those things where, uh, you know, I think Snuka and Morocco were both spent after this feud. I mean, there was nothing left in the tank after this feud.
1: No, I mean, you're right. I mean, how many times are these guys going to wrestle? Now I didn't realize that they had wrestled over and over and over again mm-hmm. until yeah, I pulled out the results. Now, here's a weird result. The Samoans defeat Eddie Gilbert and Brian Blair. Why is it a weird result? Because Brian Blair just got here.
2: Yeah, that is kind of unusual. It's definitely not the kind of booking uh that they typically do, and I do see that around this time the Samoans were doing you know odd jobs uh, here and there, uh, not as a team but more like in singles matches, they would lose. But um, I guess just the size of the Samoans uh, in the WWF uh, maybe they felt it was a little unbelievable to have them lose to uh, Gilbert and Blair, who were much much smaller.
1: I, I think it would have made more sense to have Eddie Gilbert team with a Tony Gurria type. I know Tony was in Los Angeles, but someone like that mm-hmm. and give. Brian Blair an undercard win again because he just got there
2: that makes sense that makes more sense
1: all right and then we have Paul Orndorff defeats Bob Backlund via count out again I'm sure that was originally scheduled as a championship match off we go well I'll tell you what off we go to Japan because we ask ourselves where is Hulk Hogan where is Hulk Hogan right now? He's not in Baltimore. He's not in Los Angeles. He's in Fujioka, Japan. I'm sure he left as soon as he won the title from the Iron Sheik. uh, The main event in this one is the odd team, if you are looking at it from a WWF perspective, of Hulk Hogan and Iron Mike Sharp. Uh, They beat Ricky Choshu and Yoshiaki Yatsu when Hogan pins Yatsu.
2: Yeah. They love doing that. They love going to Japan and having these really unusual match matches or team ups. I know, I think it was the year before, uh, Andre and Rene Goulet of all people, uh, won uh, the big MSG tag team, uh, tournament over there. And at the time uh, Renee Goulet was just strictly a jobber enhancement talent, uh, over here, but over there he was treated as a you know, veteran star. And, uh, So it's kind of interesting how they did these bizarre tag team matchups.
1: It really was. Now we're going on to Sunday. All-American Wrestling, and for for me, for the third time that weekend, I got to see Hulk Hogan defeat the Iron Sheik for the championship. Uh, They do a rerun of Jimmy Snuka versus Rene Goulet from All-Star Wrestling. Then we have a match from Florida, Mike Rotundo and Mike Davis versus the Infernos. As you notice, Steve, we are getting fewer and fewer non-WWF matches uh, on this show.
2: I think it's cool, though, as far as just, um, I remember just watching this, uh, uh, matches like these, I remember the JYD match, I remember particularly well, uh, when he was still wrestling for Bill Watts, Uh, it was so exciting to see uh, these talents from these other promotions on a WWF show, and at the time, we really didn't know what, like, why is this happening, is this going to become more like a uh, pro wrestling this week kind of show, like the show that uh, Joe Pedersino ended up doing with Gordon Solie, or was this just just a a thing to kind of maybe um, give you a sneak peek at somebody coming to the WWF, which eventually this this is was kind of the uh, desire or the goal of this type of a thing.
1: That uh, exactly. I mean, Vince. You know, Vince knows what he's doing. I mean, he he started it off as a you know comprehensive. Let's take a look at the world of wrestling show, and now it's becoming almost exclusively WWF. And finally. We have Adrian Adonis and Dick Murdoch, with managed by Mad Dog Manigoff, which didn't last long, (laughs) against Terry Daniels and Rob Cheney. I remember watching this show and being like, wow, Adonis is back and Dick Murdoch is in the WWF for the first time.
2: Yeah, they they were so good together. I mean, uh, I mean, they they weren't really together long enough where you could say, God, they are one of the all time great teams. But um, definitely one of the probably the most uh, bizarre uh, mismatched teams. Uh, you know, just kind of like throw, let's throw two stars together randomly and let's make a team out of them. And, and here here they are. And uh, two great workers. They could do anything in the ring. They took hellacious bumps. They uh, could tell great stories in the ring, and um, and they were believable. So they were were a great uh, addition to the WWF. I mean,
1: we'll we'll talk about this more in a later episode. But they really put to work the fact that they were two very different gimmicks. You've got the Adrian Adonis, you know, I'm from the Bowery gimmick, and Dick Murdoch, the Texas redneck gimmick, wrestling from the chase. Which I don't know if I mentioned this. Like I see, uh A logo on it when I was watching this um, and it it was it was on, I believe, channel 38 or channel 27 in Boston. And I knew nothing about it at the time, which close to 40 years later drives me crazy that there was wrestling on (laughs) the television where I live and I didn't get to see it. Um, Mass superstar against Bob Boyer. Or beats Bob Boyer. Adonis and Murdoch against Jose Martinez and Craig Carson. Uh, Jimmy Snooka defeats Butcher for Sean. Jerry Valiant defeats James Burke. Uh, Jerry Valiant, I had no idea he was back. And then Big John Stud against Jerry Griggs. And then we have a confrontation between Hulk Hogan and Big John Stud. Let's check out the audio for review purposes.
0: You know at me, Gene, as the weeks go by, as the days go by, and as the workouts go by, I'm pumping the butt through these twenty-four 24th pythons, and you know something, I'm pushing weights and putting over, weights over my head that even I can't believe, I can't believe the power that these people give the holster, but one thing, mean Gene, one thing on my mind, the main thing, superstar's going down, the mass superstar's going down, but I want that big John stud more than anything, I want to prove, and I want to be the man to make
1: Once again, Gene Okerlund took some getting used to. Wow, I, I
2: guess I guess we're learning uh, watching this. This is where Vince came up with the idea. Hey, uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna talk really loud to my announcers in their headset and tell them what to say because me and Gene just he really, really went a little too much there. That <laughs> he, was he just, that was something.
1: It was. One thing, again, not to harp on this, but like the WWF is just kind of figuring out, uh, figuring things out as they go along. All of a sudden, John Studd is no longer being managed by Fred Blassie. He has quietly and with no explanation been shifted over to Roddy Piper.
2: So that was great to see uh, um, uh, Piper actually align with Stud because uh... – you know, they had to give uh, Piper a good like army or a good uh, stable of wrestlers to kind of get him over and and make them seem like a real cohesive unit.
1: Yeah, and Stud had been here since the fall of 1982, and obviously everything has changed. You know, by by now under the old rules, he would be back wrestling in, in Florida or world-class or whatever. But Vince now needs stud as the primary opponent for the babyface Andre, the giant and stud with, if you, I think if you, you're re- revitalizing stud a little bit by at least temporarily putting him with Roddy Piper.
2: Yeah, that was, that was a smart move. And, uh, and you had, like you just said, I mean, they have to do something like that to freshen him up a bit. He'd been with Blasi for a while, and and even though he had had uh, the body slam challenge and the feuds with, you know, Andre and with Backlund, uh, you did need to freshen him up one way or another.
1: Yeah. All right. Next, we're going to Salisbury, Maryland, Sunday, January 29th, 1984. Don Morocco defends the Intercontinental Championship successfully against Chief J. Strongbow. Steve, I mean, we come from, you know, common background. We remember Chief J. Strongbow from the 70s. I just can't imagine someone getting excited at this point, seeing Strongbow uh, challenge for a title.
2: Yeah, I watched uh, the match with him against Mass Superstar from MSG uh, a couple weeks ago, and and Strongwell was doing pretty much all the same moves in the ring that we were used to seeing him do. You know, the chops, the dancing, the baseball slide, the sleeper. Uh, he was doing all that against Mass Superstar, and then at some point in the ring, uh, Mass Superstar out of out of left field just hits this strong looking clothesline that just knocked Estrada uh, on his ass, and then he pins him one two three. And, of course, that was much different than what you and I were used to growing up, seeing Strongbow, you know, find a way to to beat guys like Ken Patera and the best guys out there. But he he just had slowed down so much and, you know, his gut had gotten bigger and everything started to sag and his hair looked different. And, you know, he just he just looked old in there. He, He looked like he was going on fumes.
1: No, Father Time remains undefeated. At the end of 83, I saw Strongbow lose to Iron Sheik in Boston in like 30 seconds. They did the sneak attack thing. And, you know, it was just kind of sad to see the chief at the end. But, well, let me see. Rocky Johnson fights Paul Orndorff to a double DQ. And then once again, Bob Backlund defeats the mass superstar, which was probably scheduled as a championship match.
2: Well, yeah, nice. I, and I, I like the uh, I like that matchup of Rocky Johnson against Orndorff. They had uh, they, they teased a little bit later on, uh, kind of a, a bodybuilder type feud between the two of them, who had the better body. But but two really great pros in there, two really well seasoned guys, and uh, and definitely the potential for some good matches between those two.
1: Yeah, now the next night we go to Wilmington, Delaware. It's January 30th, 1984. A couple of interesting things here. Uh, Samula defeats the Tonga Kid, who is a substitute for Jimmy Snuka. Jimmy... Even in 83, he started to be a semi-frequent no-show. I went to a show where, I mean, the whole show was built around Snooka in 83. I think it was in Lemonster, Mass. And when Snooka, you know, didn't show up or whatever happened, I mean, the card lost all of its luster, and it kind of feels like that's what happened here as well.
2: Yeah, uh, definitely. uh, You can tell this card was built for him being on it. Without him on it, it's just a huge gap. There's nothing they could do.
1: Yeah, they had Strongbow defeating Sika by DQ, and an interesting result, SD Jones fights Samoan Alpha to a 20-minute time limit draw. I would have been like, wow,
2: SD held this guy off for 20 minutes. Maybe they just did that because they knew the fans were pissed off about Snuka and they wanted to throw him a bone or something. Hey,
1: maybe. That's a good point. Uh, let me see. Same night in Pottsdown, Pennsylvania, high school gym. The main event is Don Morocco versus Tito Santana. We don't have results here. And they have Rocky Johnson and Tony Atlas against uh, Mr. Fuji and Tiger Chung Lee. To me, that's why you have a team like Fuji and Tiger Chung Lee around so that you can have a clean win in a, in a high school gym They're an established team, but you know, they're going to lose.
2: Yeah. And that that was their, their purpose. They were just an undercard tag team and, and they were, you know, two solid veterans and it was a good place for them on the card. Yeah.
1: Now we go to Japan where Hulk Hogan is touring. I thought I was going to have the greatest trivia question of all time. Who was the first wrestler that Hulk Hogan defended the WWF championship against, but I overlooked that it was a non-title match, but Hogan's first match after defeating Iron Sheik is him pinning Higo Hamaguchi in Hakodate, Japan.
2: Yeah, that, that's a one worker I've never even heard of, honestly.
1: <laughs> I've heard of Hamaguchi, but he was not a big star. Uh, mm-hmm. And let me see, back to the United States, we have a doubleheader, uh, I believe this is a Friday night, Jaffa Mosque at Altoona, Pennsylvania. Uh, Iron Sheik defeats B. Brian Blair. Once again, I am surprised that you know Blair is doing jobs right away. Interesting tag team, Steve. Uh, Andre the Giant and Tito Santana defeat Don Morocco and Tiger
2: Chung Lee. Yeah, that's that's a really uh, oh, like a one-time only for both of those teams. So uh, I don't know if it was a case that somebody didn't show up, but uh, definitely an interesting matchup.
1: Yeah, and they have uh, Andre the Giant once again wins a battle royal. I'm not sure, you know, what happened. Like you said, maybe someone no-showed, or you know, Mr. Fuji couldn't make it. Same night, Long Island, New York, West Islip High School gym. Uh, the only result I have is a battle royal that is won by the Tonga kid, who's not even getting a push.
2: Well, well, maybe, uh, like you said, maybe they were realizing Snooker is getting more and more uh, unreliable. We've got this young kid that looks kind of like Snooker. He does the splash maybe better than Snooker does. He can he can really move around in the ring. He's, he's uh, marketable. He's attractive looking. Let's give this kid a push. And maybe they uh, had the very birth pangs of what would happen with him later on when he did get a push.
1: Uh, yeah, he had an interesting... 1984 and we'll be talking about that uh, as this podcast goes on we are going to wrap up with a, a, one last audio clip for review purposes of uh, tony atlas and rocky johnson doing an interview in st louis there
0: with the name of murdoch on a
3: test <laughs> i tell you how many rockers talk to me you understand? murdoch you want to get down don't you brother you want to get down and do some real nasty dog life fighting nothing. You know, let me tell you something, brother. This don't mean nothing to me. You understand?
0: I can't believe that.
3: It means nothing when somebody messes with my pride. You understand? I'm like hey, everybody stand out there, I got pride, brother. You understand? And when it comes to messing with my pride, you have not mess with my soul. Have am messing with my soul, I must mess with your behalf
0: can see it building here Rocky Johnson don't go away obviously this week your tag team partner in some frame of mind
3: right, I never seen him like this I'll say what he's so psyched up all I gotta say Dick Murdoch you bit off more than you can chew this time because you're in a whole lot of trouble what happens gets done with you never gets his hands on you which he will brother they're gonna cure you up
0: and gentlemen, I don't know what to tell you. Ringside, I wanted to catch Tony Atlas and Rocky Johnson in route back to the locker
1: room. I don't know what Dick Murdoch did to get Tony Atlas so mad. It wasn't on the the footage I watched, but I mean, Tony was was displeased to say the least.
2: Yeah, I, I, that, that that interview he gave, even though he was fired up, and uh, usually intensity is a good thing. I, I, that didn't sound like a typical. WWF interview, it, it's just, uh, it, it, usually they're more polished, usually they're more uh, marketable type interviews, uh, but um, Tony was starting, is going to get phased out eventually here after the uh, tag team run is over with, uh, sad but true. Uh,
1: it is sad but true, because I'm I'm someone who always saw a lot of potential in Tony Atlas. That wraps up January 1984, our deep dive into that. Next week, we're going to be doing something else, although we will be doing February 1984 in the very near future, so I hope you like that. Uh, I want to thank everyone for listening. I want to thank Brian Last for giving me this this forum. I want to thank Lou Kippelman for all the great work he does producing this show. And, of course, I want to thank everyone for listening. Uh, This has been a production of the Arcadian Vanguard podcast, Network. We'll see you next week. This concludes our podcast day.